Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, or ICAN. Uh, they won the Nobel Peace Prize back in 2017, and they've campaigned tirelessly to promote a UN treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Unfortunately, uh, much work is still to be done. Uh, a recent report from ICAN shows uh, the nine nuclear armed states spent $72.9 billion on, um, on over 13,000 nuclear weapons last year, and half of that spending was the United States alone. And uh, with us, uh, we have Tillman Ruff. He's Associate Professor at the Nossel Institute for Global Health, the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. And he's also co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of uh, Nuclear War. And uh, their new paper is called Enough is Enough, Global Nuclear Weapons Spending 2020. And it's great to have you with us on Triple R, Tillman. Hello. Thanks very much. Sorry for the technical glitch. Oh, that's okay. Great to hear your voice. <laughs> uh, we just, you know, just run run with the punches here on Triple R. Um, but I wonder, you know, when when collecting data um, for this report from ICANN, you found that nuclear um, states, there's nine of them, uh, spent almost seventy three billion last year. Um, how easy is it to kind of pull together that sort of data? How transparent is the spending from these nine nuclear arms states? It really varies, but generally not very transparent at all. And it takes quite a bit of sort of ferreting and hunting and a bit of guesswork. Um, But, yes, they're not particularly transparent about a lot of these costs. Um, And, you know, we know that the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute just a couple of weeks ago put out their estimates for total military spending last year, and it's... It's up astronomically. It's extraordinary. It's now 1,917 billion US dollars per year, the highest it's been since the end of the Cold War. So this is very much in keeping with that, but um, general increase in spending on, on weapons that make us less secure, but it's hard to ferret out these numbers. And so how do you go about making a kind of educated guess um, about just sort of how much is being spent by particular nations on nuclear weapons? Well, some of them have indicated sort of what proportion of their total military spend um, is on nuclear weapons. So, for example, China's sort of done that. France has been much more upfront and basically said nuclear costs, our nuclear weapons cost this or our nuclear deterrence costs this. Um, India, Pakistan, much less transparent. Um, and... These numbers that are in this report is really just the money that's spent on the weapons themselves and their delivery systems. It's not all of the associated costs of the infrastructure that produces the fissile materials, all of the clean-up and environmental costs, all of the care and compensation of nuclear industry workers, which in some places is, you know, involves hundreds of thousands of people that have need care and compensation over very long periods. So it doesn't factor in all of those sort of related costs. So you can probably add another 50% to this number to to really get a comprehensive sense of of just in lost opportunity and dollars at this time of an unprecedented global pandemic, how much is being fitted away on things that make us less secure. Yeah, and I I, I mean, there is... 
um, really complex relationships playing out right now on the international stage um, between the US, which spent $35 billion on, on its nuclear arsenals, and China, which spent over $10 billion by your factoring there. I mean, this does really focus the mind. Um, I mean, what's your sense of how dangerous this is becoming or really is the alarm still where it was back in 2019 around the likelihood of any of these weapons being used? Well, I think the most authoritative assessment is the bulletin of the Atomic Scientists' Doomsday Clock, which, you know, is a very based on a very careful assessment every year of how we're tracking against the big existential dangers. And this year they moved their hands forward 200 seconds to midnight as far forward as they've ever been. And really... There's nothing, apart from the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, this global treaty that for the first time bans nuclear weapons like chemical and biological um, weapons, landmines. It really, everything else is going in the wrong direction. The nuclear armed states are spending more developing new weapons, not just not disarming, as they're obliged to do, but shredding the current disarmament, the hard-won agreements that have constrained nuclear proliferation. So just this week, the, the Trump administration has said that they're abandoning the Open Skies Treaty, this treaty that George Bush, the elder you know, Republican president, put in decades ago that essentially provided some overflight capacity so Russia and the United States to be able to fly over each other's territory in a way that was designed to prevent sort of a surprise attack and, and, and make the military situation between them more stable. So there's only one treaty now remaining which is due to expire in February next year unless it's renewed which puts any constraints on, on Russian and American weapons and the Trump administration so far as basically indicating that they don't want to renew that. The Russians have said they will unconditionally. The Americans are saying we want to include China, um, which has you know less than 5% of the, top, the number of weapons that, that Russia and the United States do. Um, and there's no realistic prospect that China would, in a matter of a couple of months, you know, become party to an agreement that they weren't uh, part of before. Um, we know that in the US, the, the budget request for nuclear weapons for the 21 financial year, which was announced recently, is 19% more than it was last year. So in our report, it's um, it's 35 roughly billion US billion dollars. Next year, they're asking for 44.5 um, billion US dollars. So there's really not a lot that's going in the right direction. And basically, this is... This is um, all heading in the wrong direction. The, the presidential envoy that, that President Trump has uh, designated as his uh, arms control lead um, last week said, you know, basically the strategy was we know how to win these races and spend adversaries into oblivion. Um, that's what he said. So this is all really not adding up well. Yeah, it's really sort of interesting and worrying, I guess, to hear that, given that around the world, um, governments are having to spend, uh, you know, in, in many cases, huge amounts of money that they wouldn't have budgeted for on addressing the coronavirus pandemic and, and shutting down sort of economies and all that sort of thing. But from what we're seeing so far, do you feel like there has sort of been almost a, a doubling down on spending on nuclear weapons and armaments, I guess, you know, in part as an expression of that um, insecurity governments are feeling at the moment? 
Yeah, and there's a huge opportunity cost there, apart from, you know, that these things endanger us all every day that they're deployed and on hair trigger alert ready ready to be used within a few minutes of a decision to do so. There's also just the, the extraordinary diversion of, of resources that that represents. I mean, the... The UN Office for Disarmament Affairs has a budget of $15 million. I mean, it's, you know, it's a couple of minutes of nuclear weapons spending. The World Health Organization, which, you know, is the collective, crucial collective global organization to organize our efforts to deal with pandemics. And if there's anything that, you know, that this pandemic has made obvious is the need for effective international collaboration. Mm. I mean, the budget of WHO is just over $2 billion a year. It's tiny. Um, to achieve the health goals of the sustainable development goals. That would see between now and 2030, 100 million less people die. Life expectancy for the poorest three quarters of the world increased by between sort of three and eight and a half years would cost something like, you know, the most ambitious health goals would cost about 20% per annum of, of global military spending. So, yes, the the kind of getting back smarter that we really need to use this terrible pandemic as an opportunity to rebuild better, um, more sustainably, more equitably, really get serious about about investments in renewable energy and get our carbon emissions down. All of those opportunities are dramatically weakened by this, you know, military expenditures continuing to just sail on upwards into the stratosphere, irrespective of what's going on, that of the real threats on the ground. Yeah, and the, I mean, people are distracted as well. I mean, there's a lot that that, that individuals are going through. Um, Tillman Ruff's with us. Um, he's from ICANN, and they've got a new paper out called "Enough Is Enough: Global Nuclear Weapons Spending 2020." And their stats show an increase in spending on uh, nuclear weapons around the world um, by the nine nuclear armed states. And I, I mean, if we can whip through a couple more of the states, um, Tillman, and and the numbers. We've already spoken about the US and, and China. Um, you mentioned India and Pakistan. Israel is another nuclear armed state, and we know the Prime Minister is in court. Um, they spent a billion dollars, uh, and they've had you know several elections now to try and resolve um, who's going to lead that country. Um, what, what's happening there with, with nuclear weapons? Well, they had a nuclear program, you know, that's been a a poorly kept secret for decades, even though they still have this official position of, of neither, you know, of not confirming that they have nuclear weapons, but everybody knows that they do. They have around 90 nuclear weapons, mainly plutonium-based on planes, submarines and missiles. Um, they're the only nuclear-armed state in the Middle East, and they that is a major barrier to the other states in the Middle East getting rid of their weapons of mass destruction um, and really getting serious about, about nuclear disarmament. Um, it's, a, it's a huge problem, but, but it exists and it's essentially, you know, they're not party really to any arms control agreements um, and one of the least transparent. So this uh, billion-dollar guess for Israel is, is simply applying you know, an average kind of expenditure of what nuclear armed states spend on their nuclear weapons to their total military spend. Um, 
which is not far off Australia's for a country, you know, with a tiny fraction of the population. Yeah. Um, oh, what about yeah, France? Yeah, it's a lot of money. France and England. I mean, I was really um, surprised at the number put to, to the spend there, $8.9 billion. Yeah, and it's estimated that actually the UK spend is bigger than the Russian spend, which might surprise people. Um, uh, yeah, but France actually has... Uh, the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, bigger than China's. Not many people know that. Um, and UK and, and, and France, it's a huge drain on their on their resources, especially if the, this sort of controversial decision that about the UK, in the UK to renew its Trident missiles. All its nuclear weapons are on submarines, and there's currently a government commitment to replace those missiles and submarines at, a, at enormous cost. Um, so that's, you know, that's reflected in these numbers. These, these are substantial arsenals of, of several hundred nuclear weapons each. And you, you've mentioned, Tillman, that this report sort of demonstrates that we're heading in, in the wrong direction when it comes to reducing our, our reliance and the existence of nuclear weapons around the world. ICANN has obviously been at the forefront of sort of building an international coalition um, of nations to support a ban treaty. What's the status of that at the moment? I mean, where do you see kind of resistance to this um, internationally? Well, it's, it's prog- the majority of the world's nations support this treaty. Um, I mean, it was adopted with a vote of 122 nations. There are roughly 190 nations in the world. It's, it's progressing a bit slower than we'd like in these COVID times, but, but 81 countries have signed it, and uh, as of last week, 37 have ratified. So well, of, well over two-thirds of the way to the, to the 50 countries that need to, to ratify it before it enters into legal force and becomes binding on the countries that have joined it. We're pretty confident that that will happen uh, either late, later this year or, or latest early next um, one useful byproduct, in a way, of the COVID situation has been that for the first time the United Nations has accepted uh, ratifications virtually online. Um, in the past, you know, these are always very arcane processes that involve, you know, signed bits of paper that presidents and prime ministers have to sign that are couriered and have to be delivered by hand to an office in New York. Um, they've now figured out that that can be done virtually. So so that will hopefully make it a little bit easier, um, particularly for smaller countries to, to ratify the treaty. But, um, but, yes, it's the one bright spot in the landscape, and really it's the test. You know, if you're serious about disarmament, uh, you'll support this treaty. Yeah, that's, um, that is a bright spot that the digital revolution has hit the, um, the, the treaty <laughs> process of the UN. Um, we really are out of time, but I, I am interested. Australia is buying a whole lot of subs from submarines from, from France, and um, I suppose with that and also the relationship that Australia has with the UK and the US and, and other um, nuclear armed states, are we likely to sign that treaty, you think? I think we must. Uh, we've signed... It just sticks out like a sore thumb. I mean, we've signed all of the other treaties that ban indiscriminate and horrible weapons, landmines, cluster munitions, chemical weapons, biological weapons. We were a real leader on the Chemical Weapons Convention. Um, but we haven't... 
really exercised our, you know, we're inconsistent. If we say we're serious about disarmament, then, then we really need to sign this treaty as well. At, at the moment, we still oppose it. But importantly, um, many of the opposition, the smaller parties in Australia and the Labor opposition in its national policy platform um, has a commitment that Australia will will sign and ratify this treaty. So, so that's a really promising development. Um, yes, Australia hasn't really, as far as we can see, been active at all in trying to um, push disarmament or even really try and, and, and stop the US from just abandoning international treaties one by one. Thanks so much. It's always good talking to you, Tillman. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, Tillman, Ruff, um, I mentioned all of his other associations um, at the head of that interview. Um, if you want to find out more about ICANN's new paper, it's Enough is Enough and it's on their website. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Rachel Hocking is a Sydney-based NITV journalist. She's always walk, working on a bunch of very important stories about issues affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, many which get scant attention in other media. And it's always great to have uh, um, Rachel on Triple R. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Always good to have you on the show. And um, last time we spoke to you, I suppose it would have been a, a bit over a month ago or so, it was just after the Victorian government had announced a redress scheme for stolen generations survivors. It's kind of something that got a little bit lost in the news given the coronavirus pandemic. And I understand you've been sort of looking into how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can sort of access reparations through this means and others. How can this typically kind of work, Rachel? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're right, Dylan. It was about over a month ago where they announced this scheme for Stolen Generations mob to finally access compensation in Victoria, which got a little bit lost in the news cycle. And like you said, it's not uncommon at the moment with the saturation of coronavirus. But the good news is, is that the scheme's been announced. Victoria is one of the last states to actually promise any form of compensation to stolen generation survivors. They said it's going to roll out next year and that that will be developed in consultation with Aboriginal people, that uh, it might take the form of counselling, that it will include actual payments to survivors and some kind of funeral or memorial fund. So we'll wait to hear more details on that as the year goes on. But there are other ways for survivors to access forms of compensation. So it's been more than 10 years since the apology to the stolen generations. Tomorrow actually marks Sorry Day, which uh, isn't actually commemorating the apology in 2007. It's commemorating the Bringing Them Home report back in 1997, which was that landmark report actually acknowledging that these removalist policies took place over decades. So what you can access today as a stolen generation survivor is uh, through the National Redress Scheme for Institutional Child Sex Abuse. And that means that you would have to be able to prove that you were abused as a child in an institution. And that process is very lengthy. This is obviously the redress scheme that came out of the Royal Commission quite a few years ago and it's been handing out payments for about a year and a half, two years now 
it's a lengthy process. It's also a very invasive process. So as a survivor, to have to relive some of the trauma that you went through to answer questions which are quite detailed can be traumatic and it can be something that you choose not to do because the burden of proof is quite high in order to be approved in that process. Now, I've done a number of stories over the last year and a half about people who have chosen to go down that path and access redress, and I've also done stories on people who have passed away before they were able to receive their payments, when they were partway through the process, or when they got to the end of the process, and the money then goes on to their descendants or their partner. But... uh there are a group of people in Australia who are choosing to take institutions that took them, uh, that abused them, to take governments that were part of taking them away to court and access compensation through civil litigation, which has becoming increasingly common. And this is something that people probably don't realise that they have... Um, an option to do. When we hear about compensation schemes being announced every year, it seems that states and territories seem to be signing on that there are other ways, but that these compensation schemes often involve really lengthy traumatic process of reliving your trauma and that the payments themselves, I mean, we know that no amount of money is ever going to make up for the trauma that survivors of the stolen generations have been forced to go through but that the amounts of money that you can access in compensation schemes often isn't even enough to, you know, live a full life for more than, say, five years. Mm. And so what do we know at this stage about uh, the the design of the Victorian scheme? Because obviously this is something that is looking at sort of coming into force next year and there's consultations mm. happening, as, as you mentioned. But it, it is uh, obviously an incredibly traumatic process to go through, you know, proving this and, and um, having to front up in, in front of people and, or a commission or whatever it might be. Do we know whether there will be sort of inbuilt me- mechanisms to try and more sensitively support people through that process at all? That's what's been promised and that's what Aboriginal people have called for um, in a scheme like this. What it looks like is going to hopefully be determined by the Victorian Aboriginal community as it should be and that they will get to determine the process, the way that they access uh, money and who it goes through, especially for people who have passed away. I think we have to look at the fact that the stolen generations didn't impact individuals. It impacted families, communities, and generational trauma is now the cause of a lot of the ongoing issues that Aboriginal people have to live with. And the children, the grandchildren of people who were stolen from their families should realistically be able to benefit from any sort of scheme like this. And, I mean, you mentioned a, a couple of um, options there for people, the civil litigation route, but also the various funds that have been announced by different levels of governments and in, in different states. Is there a sort of a, a, a one place that an individual can go to be informed about what their options are and then to um, go through one process that might access all of these funds uh, in your experience, Rachel, or are, are they all separate processes that must be explored and undertaken by an individual? Depending on where you live, uh, there are Aboriginal organisations that 
advocate for survivors of the stolen generations. And so in Victoria, you have the Victorian Aboriginal um, Agency, the group called VACA, and they will let you know what your options are. They're uh, Aboriginal community-controlled organisation run by Muriel Bamblett, who has worked tirelessly for around 20 years advocating for community, and they would be aware of what options you have available to you in Victoria. Um, it's state and territory based, so you definitely want to get in touch with whoever it is in your region who's advocating for you. But Aboriginal community controlled organisations, as a rule, generally have all this information and are the best people, the best people placed to advocate and assist Aboriginal people. And you mentioned the civil litigation route has become more common for attempting to access compensation um, and, and redress for victims of the stolen generations. How, I mean, why has that become more common? Is it born out of some success that, that people have had through going down that route? So the success of civil, civil litigation is hard to measure because it's we don't know how many people have taken that route mm. in this country. But uh, we do know that generally you're going to get more money than a compensation scheme can offer you. Uh, that is that is the facts that have been presented by the cases that have been successful, um, maybe not across the board, but we can say that in general you probably will be able to access through money through civil litigation. It's not guaranteed you're going to be successful. Uh, it might be a less traumatic journey than, say, the National Redress Scheme for Institutional Child Sex Abuse, which, because of the nature of what that redress scheme is addressing, is going to be a traumatic process, and the burden of proof is very high. So that might be an option for survivors who don't want to have to relive so much of their trauma um, but feel that they want to right a wrong. The other thing about civil litigation is that, in particular with the National Redress Scheme, addressing those institutions like churches and children's homes that abuse children, not all of those institutions have signed on to the National Scheme. And mm. so the government has said, you know, we, we believe that wrongs have been committed and that people are entitled to payments up to 150000 But if the institution that abused you has not signed on to the scheme, then you actually can't access your money right now because they need to actually be lined up. And that's, to me, quite ridiculous that, a scheme, that an institution itself can choose not to. Now, I was looking into this, and if the institution hasn't signed on by the 30th of June then the Commonwealth can choose to name and shame them, which is really interesting, and fines might be slapped. So the people I've spoken to who are going down the civil litigation route have actually been forced to because the institution that abused them didn't sign on in the first place. Well, how amazing. I mean, you know, there's a clear reason why some might not want to sign on, which is the very reason that they should be. So that's, um, that's incredible. We're speaking with Rachel Hocking, journalist with NITV and co-host of The Point. And um, I understand also you've spoken to filmmaker Warwick Thornton recently, Rachel. We've been um, sort of watched his the trailer for his upcoming film, The Beach, with a lot of interest. We've had him on the show a couple of times over the years and he's always a great interview. Um, how did that go and, and have you managed to see the film at this point? 
Yeah, so it's um, actually a six-part documentary series. It's going to be coming out uh, on NITV this Friday. Sort of aired in one big chunk, so half-hour episodes adding up to three hours. That's, I didn't realise it was that long. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, and uh, it's almost like a exploration into slow TV. So Warwick Thornton, you, you, like you said, you know him well. He comes on Triple R to yarn about his... Uh, films like Sweet Country and Samson and Delilah. And he has the documentaries like We Don't Need a Map in the last couple of years where he sort of tackled head-on Australia's identity crisis. This one is more an internal deep dive into some of the things he's been reckoning with over the last few years of having quite an intense, high-profile because of the success of his films. And one of those things is addressing his alcoholism. So Warwick Thornton takes us to an isolated shack, a beautiful beach up on Barty Country in WA, just north of Broome. And he's there. I think the filming took place over six weeks. But, yeah, we're there over six episodes, and we see him go through... Uh, basically enforced self-isolation. You know, he, he put this on himself. Uh, sorry, unenforced. And so before isolation was something that we're all dealing with, he chose to take himself to a beach and separate himself from society in order to address some of his inner demons. And what results is, of course, in true work content style, a beautiful documentary. Mm. Like, the cinematography is just amazing. And... Um, a really interesting insight into who he is as a person. So there isn't a lot of talking and there isn't a lot of conversation, but you you do get to hear an insight into some of the, maybe not key moments, but some moments in his life that have shaped him. You get to see his love of cooking on display, which is really beautiful. He's quite a methodical cook and he loves his spice, which you'll find out as well. And you see a relationship that develops between him and three chickens. It's, um, oh, you got me in I, right I, there. Chicken, yeah. Chickens, everyone loves a cooking show and chickens as well. I mean, with, with We Don't Need a Map, I mean, there was a huge um, dose of humour in there as mm. well. Is, is that able to be part of this series as well, his, um, his humour, which shines through so much? Of what he does? Yeah. Yeah, I think, look, I, I think it's hard to ignore that Warwick's a very funny man and that he's not, he doesn't take himself very seriously. And that definitely comes through. You know, he's um, talking to himself <laughs> on camera <laughs> quite a bit. And so you, you hear a lot of the inner thought processes of this man who's, you know, a, a bit of a cinematic genius, but also an oddball. And he's isolating on a beach, which... Any, anyone's going to go a little bit mad during that time. Well, we've seen, we saw Tom Hanks do it too. That's right, we did. <laughs> I think I might prefer Warwick's film to that one. Um, yeah. But he's also managed, I mean, it's interesting to hear there isn't a lot of dialogue in, in the documentary because, I mean, he's managed to achieve incredible things without much dialogue, as we saw in Samson and Delilah. He just tells a story um, beautifully through um, image and, and the moving image without having to overload it with too much speaking. Mm, that's right. And so I think um, Warwick's always known that less is more. And he's a visual storyteller. 
So he is the director of this film as well, even though he's on camera. And we're seeing him alone in this environment. We do have to remember there was obviously a film crew around him. And a part of that film crew was his son, Dylan River, who filmed the majority of this, and he was the cinematographer. His niece, Tanis, uh, was also a big producer on the film. And so he has his family literally there watching him uh, act out this isolation as, you know, naturally as he can. And I asked him about, you know, how you're actually able to separate the fact that you've got this film crew there. But he did get a bit of privacy, apparently, during the filming of it. And they did sort of leave him to his own devices for the most part. Well, it sounds like so a, um, a, a series for our time. Um, and yeah. I think maybe we have more connection with that than we might have otherwise um, in non-pandemic times. What, what else is planned for Reconciliation Week on NRTV? Is it a big um, period of programming for the, yeah, for the channel? Yeah, so- uh, yeah, absolutely. It's always a big period for us. So May 27th, when Reconciliation officially kicks off, is the anniversary of the 1967 referendum. It's also going to be Wednesday, which is when my program, The Point, goes to air. And so we'll be joined by Warwick Thornton in studio having a yarn about his show, The Beach. But We'll also be reflecting on 20 years since the bridge walk or the bridges walks that happened in 2000 where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people walked across bridges across this country in an effort to show that black and white Australia wanted a similar future. How far we've actually come in that time is um, (laughs) to be determined and we're going to be unpacking a lot of that on the show on Wednesday. We're also going to have a look at Pat Dodson's life, who's often been been called the father of reconciliation. And so we'll be having a reflection on the many things that that man has achieved in his time. Well, it sounds like an amazing show coming up once again for The Point uh, this Wednesday night. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us on Triple R. Always great to have you on the airwaves and um, we'll catch you again soon. Hey, thanks for having me. Cheers. That's uh, Rachel Hocking, journalist with NITV and co-host of The Point. You can catch her reporting um, on NITV on their website. Triple R. Very soon, speaking with Emma Dawson. She's with Per Capita. And I think, I wonder if, like me, she's been wondering and musing about uh, the faces of those Treasury officials that kind of went, oh. How is it that that hairdresser in said suburb has 1,500 employees and not one (laughs) Um, and sent hints um, finding a $60 billion mistake in the JobKeeper package? Um, Perhaps tell us what your face looked like, Emma, when you first heard the news that there's an over-allocation to the way that 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 fund has been set up? Um, there was There's an emoji, I think, that's a shocked face that resembled my um, wide-eyed reaction to that, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, shocked, but, but not, also not surprised. I think I, the announcement was, um, it's a pretty staggering error, $60 billion. It's almost half of the cost of the program. Um, and like a lot of people, I've sort of been thinking, well, you know, how did, how did this happen? Um, the early explanations sort of didn't make sense in that they were saying, well, people misapplied for it. You know, they applied by stating they had 1,500 employees rather than 
um, the cost of the of the support, which, as you just noted, but that's actually something that happened after the fact. So they announced 130 billion on the 30th of March, and applications didn't open until three weeks later. So if you actually look more deeply at what's happened, what's gone on. The assessment of the cost apparently was made according to Australian tax office records. So the ATO provided an indication to Treasury of the number of people, number of employees in the economy that they thought would uh, need the support. Treasury then then made that recommendation to government. So it seems possible that Treasury has um, provided the figure based on the assumption that the government would support everyone in the uh, ATO database. And, of course, as we know, the government's quite deliberately decided to exclude short-term casuals, university workers, arts workers um, and temporary uh, visa to international workers on temporary visas. So I suspect that might be where the overestimation has come in. And then, of course, it hasn't been picked up because hasn't been picked up earlier because people have made those errors on their application forms. So um, it is a bit of a snafu. Uh, but I think the good news is there's $60 billion there that means um, there's more firepower in the government's fiscal um, policy barrel to be able to either extend that support further now, um, which is something I think they should seriously consider, or perhaps, um, failing that, use it for additional... Well, for real stimulus down the track, because what we've seen so far isn't technically stimulus spending, it's support, uh, life support for the economy is the way I've been putting it. Yeah, and I mean, to some extent, we shouldn't be that surprised that there are imperfections in the scheme. I think the government might have even acknowledged that, you know, this isn't perfect. It had to get through very, very quickly in order to, um, you know, like really save people's livelihoods, um, yeah, to put it mildly. Right. And, you know, the ALP supported that policy. But now we're at this stage where there is a $60 billion kind of black hole. We've got more money to spend mm. than we thought we initially did and we know there are imperfections in the scheme in terms of you know people some people are having a pay rise through the scheme when they only might work a few hours a week when they've been for example a casual employee in the job for more than 12 months so what should really be our priority priorities at this juncture I mean I know there's a review coming up soon but Mm. how should we best amend the existing kind of set of policies we have if we look at JobKeeper as one example to ensure that we're recovering from this pandemic in the best possible shape? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. It is the critical issue at the moment. So, yes, um, any program rolled out this quickly, and it had to be rolled out quickly, is bound to have a few little errors. You know, it's not going to be perfect, but $60 billion's a pretty big mistake or a pretty big overestimation. Um, so I do think it's likely that um, the original figure accounted for some people that have been left out, and I would like to see the government extend um, that support to particularly the university sector. And they've actually gone out of their way to cut the university sector out. They've tweaked the rules three times every time the university's found a way of of qualifying. That's really baffling to me, um, particularly because we know that one of the things we're going to need to rebuild our economy is that kind of research, knowledge, understanding that comes from the tertiary education sector um, that can inform decisions about investment in the economy on the other side. So I'd like to see it extended to university staff. I'd like to see it extended um, to those short-term um, immigrant workers who are who are really have been left with, you know, nothing. Um, 
no support whatsoever. And they've been here doing some of the jobs that Australians tend to turn their noses up at. So I think, you know, we owe those people um, our, our help. And for, for short-term casuals, that particularly hit a lot of women um, who are in, you know, who are the second income earners in their household and have uh, casual work in retail or hospitality that they fit around their sort of their caring responsibilities. Um, and those jobs will be hard to replace on the other side. So if the purpose of this was to keep people attached to their employers, I think it would um, it'd be good to see that extended further. But beyond that, um, my concern is this debate about, look, it's a saving, it's a saving to the taxpayer. That's the worst possible approach we can take during an economic crisis. And it's particularly worrying to see that in an online poll in The Age this morning, more than half of respondents agree that the money should be saved rather than spent. Um, and any economist in the country will tell you that's the wrong way to go about this. Uh, the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Kennedy, who's a very uh, capable and experienced uh, macroeconomist, has been quite clear in his presentations to the Senate that we're going to need more stimulus spending, more fiscal policy um, as we try to rebuild rather than less. So banking that saving, not a good idea. It's not a good thing that there's less money stimulating the economy during a downturn. There's so much in there that I'd love to ask you about, but maybe if we just stick to that point. Uh, we, yeah. we haven't really been seeing governments ruling too much in or out in this period, and I mm. suppose that stood out um, through the national yep. cabinet process and and the way that the health advice has really been preeminent uh, with which, with um, you know what parts of the economy have shut down and, and how we're easing back out of some of those restrictions. Mm. But we are starting to see the federal government at least you know, starting to rule things out that we don't have money trees and the like. And yeah. do you think that's then going to change the policy we see when we, as you say, move from this kind of life support payments through to actual economic stimulus, which is about getting the economy moving again and um, and growing again, perhaps? Yeah, look, I'm starting to get a bit worried about that, Kalia. I think um, at first, you know, that the government should be applauded for having taken not just the advice of its medical professionals, but also listened to advice from Treasury, from the ACTU, from Greg Pombay and others to say we do need, and, and from the opposition as well, to say we do need a wage subsidy. So they were acting very much in a pragmatic, uh, responsive way and listening to experts. Um, we're starting to see a bit of uh, more of the ideological um, barriers creeping in now, which I perhaps was inevitable to some extent as the immediate health crisis passed. And I think we're starting to see now um, a real fracturing of that kind of bipartisan unity that's been in place necessarily for the last couple of months. Um, and I think the debate's a good thing because uh, for the Treasurer and the Prime Minister to be saying... Um, you know, there's no magic money tree. Uh, the Treasurer's economic statement to Parliament a couple of weeks ago on what should have been Budget Day filled me with dread, actually, because he was quite explicit in saying that government couldn't leave this recovery. It had to be up to the private sector. He didn't use the word stimulus once in that address. It was over 3,000 words, and not one of them was stimulus, um, which worried me a lot because... Actually, the private sector isn't going to be in a position to drive this recovery. It's only government that can borrow at record low interest rates, virtually free money, um, that they can borrow and invest in rebuilding the economy. And if we don't do that, we are less, much, much less likely to see our economy recover as quickly as it needs to. So it's all very well to say, look, this is a massive debt and the next generation is going to have to pay it off. 
But actually, the much more dangerous thing for the next generation is that they don't have jobs to go to. They can't afford... Um, they've got no housing. They can't afford to buy a house or even rent a decent house. Um, it takes two to three to four years uh, for young people to get into the into the employment market. That has what economists call scarring effects that can go throughout their entire lives. So we actually need government to invest in the productive capacity of the economy. Debt, public debt is not like household debt. You don't have to pay it off in a certain period of time. And if we can come out of this and grow our economy sustainably, you know, we can't keep chewing up the planet's resources the way we have in the past because climate change is still sitting there like a big monolithic elephant in the room on the other side of this crisis. But if we can grow the economy sustainably and create good jobs for people, then eventually the size of that debt really pales into insignificance um, compared to, to GDP over time. So I do think it's critical that any ideology that is still talking about small government, not spending public money, not investing, um, is very firmly refuted in this environment. And, and we, we must say no. Um, private sector is not going to have the capacity to borrow a lot of money. Um, they're not going to be investing in new industries for a while. Um, people aren't going to have the disposable income to spend in the economy. It's government that's going to have to lead the way. And if that's going to be an ideological debate, then we're going to have to engage with that pretty robustly. We're speaking with Emma Dawson, Executive Director at Per Capita, all about the economic recovery uh, throughout and, and after, if there isn't another side, hopefully, of the coronavirus pandemic and also chatting about the $60 billion in savings from the JobKeeper um, program that was discovered last Friday. And, I mean, it's also apparent, Emma, that if we are kind of to recover economically, we need to sort of change a little bit about the way we do things because we've had relatively kind of small economic growth for the past number of years. Is. And if yeah. there is more money there for us to spend on helping us to recover from the coronavirus, do we need to, I guess, realign some of our priorities and use this as an opportunity to kind of shake things up a bit and look to those industries and um, parts of society that we can really uh, kind of spur on through this money that was set aside for a scheme but maybe isn't as needed as it once was, or at least in terms of the government's parameters, isn't being spent on that at this stage? Yeah, look, absolutely. And, and more. They're going to need to borrow more. Mm. Um, $60 billion is not going to cut it. $60 billion is about 3% of GDP. And any reasonable assessment looking at the size of the downturn would say we would need to spend, you know, more like 10 to 15, um, uh, 10% at least. Um, and you're right about the re what I'm calling the reset. So there were things in our economy that weren't working well before this crisis. Um, we had had sluggish wage growth for years. We had a persistently high unemployment rate compared to other OECD nations. We had a very high underemployment rate, and mm. that's just skyrocketed again now. Um, and business wasn't investing, even before the crisis. They were not investing in productivity gains in, um, in research and development and, and new in industrial activity. Um, we'd actually moved to a situation where business was extracting wealth from the economy rather than creating wealth. And, of course, we have this huge problem of anthropogenic climate change. Um, so there is a real opportunity here um, to reset the, the economy. And that doesn't mean, as some people um, have lamented on the right, that, you know, all oh, the left wants to re have a revolution and a socialist utopia. Um, no, we don't need to completely, uh, you know, seize the means of production, but we do need to think more creatively about how we invest in a sustainable program of economic growth 
um, take advantage of the opportunities of moving to renewables and um, uh, renewable energy that can power advanced manufacturing, how we can lift the wages and conditions for those workers that have been on the front line during this crisis. And and you, Um, I mean, these kinds of arguments are are being made in in various different ways by those Mm. far-left groups called the Australian Industry Group and the Business Council of Australia. Like, there is actually, um, you know, groups that are representing over 60,000 companies in the country are speaking like this. And I wonder, I mean, you've just put out some analysis around employment and this idea Mm. of, you know, we need to see more productivity. I mean, that's a conversation we've had with you in the past, but this idea of um, underutilisation, can you explain that? Because when I saw that, that's another word that I haven't really seen um, pop up so often when we talk about employment. Yeah, so underutilisation essentially talks about um, the extent to which our labour force is not operating at full capacity. And it means adding the unemployment rate to the underemployment rate. So the unemployment rate now is about 6.2%. Now, that's hiding a lot of unemployment that's out there that's being kept off the books by JobKeeper. And again, the Treasury Secretary said he thought it was twice that. But if we look at the official rate... 6.2% unemployment, and we've got um, 13.5%, 13.7% underemployment. That's 19.9% altogether. That means one in five people in the economy do not have enough work. They're looking for more hours or they're looking for a job altogether. Um, And they're not doing that because they're bored. They They need more hours or more work because they need more income. So... At a personal household level, that means that one in five households haven't got enough um, income to to meet their needs. But at a macroeconomic level, what underutilisation for the labour force means is we've got 20% less economic activity by workers than we could have. We have one in five people able to contribute more to the economy than they're currently being allowed to do or given the opportunity to do. And this is and an exacerbation of, um, yeah. of long-standing trends, as you point out. So it is. Do, yeah. are, you, are you hearing yet that, uh, that government and business and, and unions we know of have been very active in this period as well, are likely to, to jump on that? Yeah, I think um, but business and unions are, are kind of in agreement here that we do need to reduce underutilisation. We need to put the economy to full work at full capacity to drive the drive the recovery. Um, and the government it doesn't disagree with that. The disagreement comes in the government says there's no role for government in making that happen, and it's just up to the private sector. Whereas, as you note, even those noted trots at the Business Council are saying, actually, no, we're going to need some help. We're going to need some fiscal stimulus to get people back to work, to get our industries back. This is a a downturn unlike anything we've ever seen because entire sections of the economy have been deliberately shut down and we don't know how they're going to react and how they're going to come back, snap back, as the Prime Minister has said to that. It's unlikely that we'll just return to business as usual. So it is an opportunity to think creatively about how we can um, make the economy more robust and address some of those problems that were there before the crisis. And that's going to include not just about government spending, it's also about having effective industry policies, um, research and development incentives for the private sector, um, investing in um, you know frameworks that can deliver new technologies, value-add um, supply chain development, but also look at how our you know, foundational economy jobs, the care jobs, the service jobs, the ones that have been going to work every day for the last 
couple of months while we've all been working from home, how those jobs can be improved and made more secure as well. So um, the casualisation of the workforce in Australia that's been really exposed by this crisis and by JobKeeper is amongst the highest in the world. And actually, um, people need security. They don't spend a lot of money if they don't know how many hours they're getting next week. So that's one thing we could do um, is really fix the definition of casuals. And I know the unions are going to push pretty hard for that now. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, we, we hear a lot that, you know, don't never waste a crisis and there are interest groups across the world and also across the Australian economy using this as an opportunity to put forward what they already thought should be happening. Yeah, and this is right. and this is the perfect opportunity now to do all the things that we thought should be happening anyway. Um, but yeah. one of those um, issues that we've spoken to you about for a long time, Emma, is, you know, the Raise the Rate campaign and obviously, yeah. you know, the, the, the job seeker, the renaming and then the increase in that. Uh, what's likely to happen uh, once we hit September and some of these schemes kind of, you know, might just drop mm. off a cliff or maybe not? Uh, mm. uh, are, are we likely to see that drop right back to the way it was when it was called uh, New Start or are we well, likely to keep a, a higher rate there? I think that, so. the Prime Minister's pretty insistent that it's going back to the rate it was before. I don't think that's possible. With about 2 million people likely to be on that payment for some time, um, I mean, it was unconscionable before there were 2 million people and there was 800,000 people on it. It was just, it's just a completely unlivable rate of $40 a day. So I don't see how they can do that really and expect um, it not to only be a wrong and um, thing to do that will put people into despair, but also a, a significant drag on the recovery. Can they keep it at the current rate? I think there is, and I know there's been a lot of criticism of um, Anthony Albanese for saying he, he doesn't think it should be kept at the current rate because it's higher than the age pension. I have some sympathy for that position because currently it's job seeker at the moment um, puts more into the pockets of people who aren't working than it does for someone working a fairly, you know, minimum wage job three days a week. So there are perverse outcomes um, if you keep it at a rate that actually disincentivises a lot of people from working, particularly women who work part-time. So if we were to do wholesale tax reform, we could keep it as it is, increase the minimum wage, reduce um, marginal tax rates. That's a big program of tax reform. And I, I actually think that needs to be done. But in the immediate term, you need to set job seeker somewhere between, um, you know, just just below the age pension, perhaps. I think I think at least 50% of the current increase should be kept. That's well, my personal well, view. I wonder about what it means politically, too. I mean, given so many people have experienced what it would be like to live on the, the old sort of new start rate, even though they might be getting doubled at at the moment, they would be, you know, highly attuned to the fact that the rate as it was isn't really enough to live on at all. Mm. So you wonder whether the government could uh, could justify not raising the rate at all, given people have a very lived experience of what it actually looks like. Look, that's right, Dylan. There's, you know, at least half of the people currently on um, JobSeeker were on Newstart before the crisis, and they know they can't go back to that. Um, it's made a massive difference to people's lives. It would be a hell of a shock for people that have come onto it during the crisis mm. um, to experience what it's like to, to go back to the old rate. Um, and I think, actually, that 
is politically just too dangerous for the government to do that. Um, it's, you know, some cynical people at the, at the outset were saying, well, they're only doing this because now it's their voters that have gone on to the unemployment queues. I don't, I don't think it's... Um, I'm not quite that cynical, but there will be political damage uh, if they try to force 2 million people back to living on $40 a day, quite apart from the economic damage that will wreak. So, no, a permanent increase and a significant increase is needed. Before the crisis, the Raise the Rate campaign was calling for $95 a week. Um, I think if we keep 50% of the current rate, then that, that equates to about $112 a week, and I think that's the minimum increase that's needed. Well, uh, on my um, trip into the studio this morning, the, the line outside the Centrelink office near my house was already right around the block at yeah. uh, quarter past eight this morning and the office opened at 9am. So oh. we know there's pain in the community right now and um, those those job, those queues are still there. So anyway, um, really good to yeah. speak with you, Emma. And uh, and yeah, people can chase up the, the, the analysis around the unemployment rates on the per capita website. We'll speak to you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.